because you can put as much money as you want in the offering plate and you can dedicate as much time as you can to church activities. But if you are not obeying the word of the Lord, the same condemnation that God makes to Saul, he will also make to you. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. You know, that's the challenge for us. Someone has said the challenge throughout all history is for God's people to simply take him at his word, to remember the faithfulness of God. As we've seen the last couple of weeks and going through the series of prophets, priests, and kings, that's what Israel really faced. Could they really believe that God would be their God and that they would be his people? And so it's really a story of running back and forth. It's running to the Lord. It's running from the Lord. It's being on the mountain of his faithfulness, and it's being in the valley away from his presence. But over and over, we will see that in spite of God's people forsaking him, our Lord does not forsake his own. Look with me, if you would, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is Samuel's farewell address to Israel. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. It was as if all of the elements of weather combined for a scenario in what was described in a best-selling book that later turned into a movie, The Perfect Storm. And if you've seen the film, characters played by George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, they are in the middle of the sea, going out on a voyage, 
in order to make a living to catch as much as they can. They haven't caught anything. They hear that the weather is getting bad and they need to turn back because of the hurricane that's coming their way. But they say, let's just stay out for a couple of more days until we catch something. And they end up on one of the largest catches of their lives. But in the process, get caught in one of the biggest storms they've ever faced. And if you've seen towards the ending of the movie, they are fighting against the waves that are crashing against that boat. It is all they can do to keep it from capsizing. And there is a point where they conquer this large wave and the weather seems to loosen up around them. They think that they've really gotten over the worst of it. And there's a point where they are celebrating. They are jumping up and down. And then the movie turns and you see this giant wave that there is no way they can escape to where the boat goes up to almost 90 degrees and flips over backwards. And every one of those men end up perishing in the sea. What they saw was the calm before the storm. You know, sin always has a consequence, but sometimes the consequences are delayed. And when Israel demanded a king at the time when they were fighting against the Ammonites, they had forsaken the Lord their God. The Bible tells them that God says that is a bad move on your part, and there will be consequences for it. But they don't immediately sense those consequences. In fact, in the previous chapter that we read from chapter 11, we see that Israel is actually going out to battle against this king of the Ammonites with whom they asked for a king in the first place so that they could battle against him. He says to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. In 1 Samuel 11 too, he must have gotten that tactic from how to read friends and influence people. Gouge out their right eyes, they'll serve you. Apparently, the elders of Jabesh come and say, give us seven days. Saul hears of it. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he calls for all the men of Israel to come to the aid of Jabesh. He tears a yoke of oxen in pieces. He sends them throughout the land and he says in chapter 11 verse 7, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. They come out, drive the Ammonites back and in 11.13, the Bible says, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It seems like they are not going to suffer the consequences for their sin. But slowly but surely, drip by drip, crack by crack in the rocks, the character flaws begin to come out. The truth is revealed. And as Samuel bids farewell to Israel, this great prophet, this great judge of old who has served the Lord honorably, who has heard the voice of the Lord from his childhood on, who has anointed Saul as king on behalf of the Lord's response to his people, gives his swan song of what's taken place. And then he reminds the people in chapter 12, verse 12, of what they said, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Because when you forsake the heavenly king for an earthly king, no matter how much it seems calm in the present, rest assured that a storm is coming. And a storm is coming for 
Israel. And Samuel reminds the people, he says, here's how you have to look at life. Here's how you look at my relationship with you. He goes on to say in 1213, behold, the kingdom you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you, Saul. And he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. So he gives them this four-step program, fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, and don't rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And then he adds this caveat. He says, if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord in 1215, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. You and your king. Follow God, it's going to go well for you. Don't follow the Lord, and there's no way that it's going to end well. 12.17, you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. And the problem starts to become apparent when Israel's earthly king starts disobeying the heavenly king. And so in the very next chapter, Saul is getting ready to wage war against the Philistines, Israel's arch enemy. He is sitting there waiting for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice to ask for the Lord's blessing on this event that is about to take place. And he becomes impatient. Samuel's delayed because he has business that he has to attend to. Saul has been commanded by the Lord to wait to let Samuel make the sacrifice. And instead of doing so, he says, I'm in a hurry. Let's get this show on the road. And he makes the sacrifice himself. They go out to battle. Samuel comes along. He finds out what has taken place. And he says, this is the message of the Lord. Because you have disobeyed God, you have just forfeited your right as king over Israel. Saul wins the battle. Then he does something else. As the battle continues and they prepare for the next one, he makes this foolish vow. He says, unless I eat, my soldiers cannot eat. So his soldiers get in there in the heat of the day, in the heat of battle. They come up upon food. They're starving to go against the enemy. They know the command of the Lord. Saul's son Jonathan has not heard the command and begins to eat. And so now Saul is faced with an even bigger predicament, his own kin have disobeyed the command that they have not heard. And all of Israel begins to lose confidence in this man that they had once said just a few chapters earlier, who has said that Saul should not be king? Let us take them out and kill them. To where Saul has to say, look, let them be okay. It's fine. I'm here. And now he's here, but God's not here. Now he's got the power, but he does not have the anointing. Isn't it something how the scripture seemingly turns on these little events? I mean, is it really that big of a deal for Saul to light the fire and offer the sacrifice himself? There's an event recorded where a man by the name of Uzzah does the same thing. He sees the ark of God is about to to drop. They're carrying it on poles. God's commanded him not to touch the ark, but he sees the ark's not to touch the ground, things that we hold sacred. And so he reaches out his hand and tries to grab the ark when it's about to fall, and God kills him instantly. 
It just seems like, if you're looking at it from an earthly perspective, it almost looks like an overreaction on God's part. Why doesn't he let up? And in our human tendency, in our human sense, we reveal to ourselves that we actually know very little about the character of God. Someone said it isn't just about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing in the right way. Both of them, principles and people, have to come together. But what Saul does here is rather than seek the counsel of the Lord, rather than pray, rather than hear from God, he decides to do his own thing. And it isn't just that Saul doesn't want to wait to hear from the Lord. He doesn't want to hear from the Lord, period. And as a result, the Bible gives the strongest condemnation that it has given to this point of his mission and ministry. The Lord rejects Saul in 1511. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments And Samuel, the prophet, was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, God's regret is different from our regret. He does not regret what he does. God does not make mistakes, but he does regret people's actions. God deals with character and emotions like you and I do, and he regrets what Saul the king does. He regrets what the people do in response. The Lord feels the weight of our sin. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, he gives a full rebuke to what Saul did. As Saul tries to protest his innocence, he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Think about the greatest sacrifice that you have made for your family. Maybe you sacrificed a job. Maybe you sacrificed an opportunity. Think about the great sacrifice maybe you made on behalf of the church. Maybe that was a large financial gift. Maybe you gave up a hobby or something else so that you could be in the Lord's house. And God honors those things. Whatever the great sacrifice that you have made that have cost you everything in your mind, has cost you something significant, just know this. Take all the sacrifices in the world, and God says, I would rather you obey my word. Because you can put as much money as you want in the offering plate, and you can dedicate as much time as you can to church activities, but if you are not obeying the word of the Lord, the same condemnation that God makes to Saul, he will also make to you. Why is it that there is this constant struggle, even within church culture and church life, to simply take God at His Word. To simply do what He says. To lay our anxiety, to cast our care on Him, to share in the great commission of our Lord, to speak the truth in love to one another, even when it means rebuking one another. It's this constant tension between what do I do, what do I not do, do I rebuke, do I encourage, do I move forward, do I stand still, do I step backwards? And the only way you will know that is if you are walking in obedience with the Lord. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust Him and obey Him. 
And Saul will hear these words from the Lord. It is not depart from me. I never knew you, but it may as well be. He says, because you have rejected me, I have also rejected you. And perhaps one of the saddest statements in all the Bible is found in 1524, where Saul admits to Samuel before the people, I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Listen, it's not a license to be a dictator or to be a jerk, but if you fear men more than you fear God, that will not end up well for you. If you have a pastor or a leader that is more concerned with approving people than following the Lord, you got a problem. And if you would rather people speak well of you, if you live by people's compliments, you'll die by their criticisms. And if you would rather people speak well of you than to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God says this message is for you too. And there's an irony here. You can see Saul regretting what he'd done. He's trying to, to turn it back. In fact, the next verse over, he grabs at Samuel's robe and it tears. So he calls after Samuel and Samuel's walking away, grabs his robe, robe tears, and Samuel does not miss a beat. Here's what he says in response. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Unless you think there should be another chance for Saul and for kings of old, Agog, the king of the Amalekites, comes up and he says, Have we not had enough with death? And the Bible says, this is not the PG version, it says, Samuel hacks Agog, the king, to pieces. And he goes to his house, never sees Saul again, and spends the rest of his life grieving over the one whom the Lord had anointed. You know how you lose the anointing of God? When you think that you've learned enough in your walk that you can make it on your own. People do it all the time. Watch this. I don't need church to be in the Lord's house. I can worship anywhere I want. Okay. I don't need accountability. I know what God's Word says. I don't need Christian friendships. All right. I don't need to be a witness for Jesus. There are plenty of other people that are doing that. Yet that's the last thing He said on His Word. So whenever you hear someone justify their walk with God or Justify this lack of commitment or lack of obedience. Just understand that is not the Spirit speaking there. That's the works of the flesh. And God says, out of all of the things that you do, I want your obedience. I want you to give because you love me and you'll obey me. I want you to serve because of what I've done on your behalf. And friends, when we pick and choose what commands of God to obey and which ones to leave out, we're no better than Saul. The man who would be king 
finds out there's only one king. But I want you to notice before any of this happens that there is the providence of God. Even before Israel gets in the storm, God says, I will rescue you in spite of yourselves. Before these events happen, God delivers a promise through his ancient prophet. It's found in chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord. In asking for yourselves a king, the people respond in fear. They ask for Samuel to intercede on their behalf. And he says to the people, 1221, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn aside after empty things that can't profit or can't deliver. They're empty. And then Mark 12, 22 down. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it was pleased the Lord. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. After all of this sin, God is still there. In spite of people forsaking Him, abandoning Him, sometimes outright denying Him, God sticks with His people. We don't call this grace, we call this mercy. God not giving His people what they deserve. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. If you can think of the worst aspect of your life, God will be faithful to you. If you will remember his word. And he tells us today the same words that he said through Samuel. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Brothers and sisters, it can be well for you. Though all this outside world forsake you, though everything seems to be crumbling around you, it can be well with your soul if you will do what the Lord said through Samuel. He says, first of all, to fear the Lord. The Bible makes this very plain that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You want fear? You want wisdom? Follow the Lord. This isn't a type of of fear that makes you run and cower under your bed. This isn't the type of fear that makes you afraid of the dark. Rather, this is the, the reverential awe before God that I want to honor God more than I do people. And here's the truth. Fear of man will either overwhelm fear of God or fear of God will overcome fear of man. But you can't have two masters. You can't serve God and man. You can't serve God and money. You have to do one or the other. Either my fear of man will overwhelm my fear of God, or my fear of God will overcome my fear of man. He says to fear the Lord. Then he says, number two, we are to serve him. Not walking around with an entitlement mentality. Not walking around as if we deserve something or we know better. Instead, we follow after the example of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. That's our whole role in life, is to serve the Lord And then he says, number three, to obey his voice. This is so important. When we talk about being all in for Christ, being willing to do whatever it takes, we are saying a willingness and a readiness to say yes to God before he even asks the question. To have your heart in such a place that before God even says go to you, you say yes to him. You won't regret that. 
And then number four, to not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Don't rebel against God because you think you know better. You don't. Don't think that somehow you can get your life in order better than the God who ordered all creation can on your behalf. You you know, it's interesting. Israel is not entirely different than where some of us are today in our view of government, whatever side of the aisle that we're on. We look to government often to solve problems that only God can solve. Now, government can be a good Government is to be just to administer. But if we place our hope in a president or a candidate or a Republican or a Democrat, and we so focus on our temporal ideologies that we miss out on the true king, we are in the same place as Israel is. Israel keeps saying over and over, give us a king. Give us a candidate. Give us someone who will represent our issues And God keeps saying, I am your king. Oh, dear people, when we focus more on the temporal than we do the eternal, it is not the king we we reject. It is the Lord. And He tells us that in following His Word, the only people we can be are people who are willing to live for Him I love what Samuel says at the end. It all comes in in the power of prayer in 1 Samuel 12 and verse 23. After saying, the Lord will not forsake His people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord, serving faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Samuel the prophet says, Israel, you've made a terrible choice. I'm stepping away, and yet I will pray for you. Isn't that something? When the people of God are prayed for even when they don't follow the Lord. Can you think of someone who's done that on your behalf? Maybe you're doing that for someone right now. And folks, as long as there's the power of prayer, there's hope. As long as there's a God in Israel, there is a way forward if we will obey and serve the Lord. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.